Welcome to the conversation at airsafe.com with your host, Dr. Todd Curtis. This is show number 43, a discussion with concerns after a string of airline safety events. This show was first broadcast on April 1st, 2008. This conversation has extensive highlights from the April 1st, 2008 edition of the Koja Namdi Show from National Public Radio Station WAMU in Washington, D.C. This was a roundtable discussion featuring myself, as well as the Editor-in-Chief of Aviation Daily, Jim Matthews, and the Vice President for Operations and Safety of the Air Transport Association, Basil Barimo. From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Nandi Show. It's the question you never, ever want to be asking when you are about to ascend 30,000 feet into the air. I wonder how safe this airplane is. Most of us, of course, don't have the knowledge to answer that question, and so we opt instead for ignorance disregarding the flight attendants as they go through their mantra about emergency exits and flotational devices. But lately, the headlines have made it hard to remain so blasé about the safety of air travel. Last month, the FAA fined Southwest Airlines $10 million after the airline continued to fly planes that had not been inspected for fuselage cracks. Other airlines canceled hundreds of flights last week amid questions over wire bundling on their aircraft. For those of us who are not engineers, making sense of these news stories is easier said than done. So, how safe are the planes we travel in? Is one kind of plane or one airline safer than another? And is the government doing enough to monitor the industry? Joining us to answer these questions and more is Jim Matthews, Editor-in-Chief of Aviation Daily. Jim, thank you for joining us. Good to see you again. Oh, you too. Joining us by telephone from Seattle is Todd Curtis, aviation safety expert and founder and publisher of airsafe.com. That's a website that provides safety information to the traveling public. Todd Curtis, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. And joining us by phone from Washington is Basil Barimo, who is Vice President of Operations and Safety with the Air Transport Association, which is a trade group that represents U.S. airlines. Basil Barimo, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Jim Matthews, one newspaper in the Chicago area said last week in an editorial that if there was any doubt we are near crisis with our nation's airline industry, there should be none after this week. Allow me to continue. It goes on. America and Delta Airlines canceled 400 flights Thursday to reinspect wiring on their MD-80s and MD-88s. On Wednesday, Americans scrubbed 318 flights. Earlier this month, Southwest Airlines canceled scores of flights when it was found that 46 of its planes had not been properly inspected for fuselage cracks. What do you make of the characterization that the airline industry is in a near crisis situation? I think that's an exaggeration. Uh, is there something here? Of course there is. Uh, but what it really started with was that, that Southwest incident. Uh, and once uh, it became clear that some inspections had not been done, uh, a lot of finger pointing began. And uh, was it the oversight, or was it we didn't do it, or did we fail to get an extension that we needed, and, and so forth. And so what you wound up having was uh, the rest of the industry uh, realizing that they had a problem. And FAA, in turn, uh, launched an audit of compliance on uh, airworthiness directives throughout the system. Uh, so what that led to uh, was really everyone kind of going through almost a paperwork exercise to make sure that all their T's were, were crossed and their I's were dotted. 
uh, it's uh, an abundance of caution, I think, more than anything else. Uh, the fact is that, that we still have an enviable safety record, and, uh, you know, if you look at the, the, uh, the inspections that were done, um, this was not a case of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of unsafe planes flying around the skies. Uh, if there were, uh, these groundings would have lasted more than, than, in most cases, hours. If they had uncovered something serious, uh, entire types would be grounded for, for quite a long time until they were, the, the problems were resolved. It's a question of going through the paperwork and making sure that everything was done to the letter. And in some cases it was, in some cases it was in dispute, and in most cases they just wanted to double-check and be sure. Uh, and and so that's, I think, mostly a paperwork exercise. Todd Curtis, do you also feel that Chicago's Daily Herald was overstating the near-crisis situation as the paper characterized it? I think they were overstating the near-crisis with respect to the actual risk. I don't think they're overstating it with respect to the public's mind about where safety is right now. As uh, many have pointed out over in the industry, uh, we're in an era where the Internet gives us unprecedented amounts of access to information, both the average person and for folks inside the safety business. And whenever something happens, even if it's a small event that happens in aviation, it's easily accessible. And really, in the last month or so, there have been several events back-to-back, -back, which individually would not have been much of a news story, but collectively gives the general public some sort of idea that the system is collapsing on itself. And, again, that's a function of the information out there, and perhaps it's difficult for the average person to digest it. It doesn't indicate, in my opinion, that we're at high risk here. Basil Borimo, the Southwest Airlines incidents that we re incident that we referred to had to do with inspections for cracks in the fuselage of aircraft. How important are such inspections to the safety of the aircraft? Uh, those types of inspections are, are very important, and we, we learned uh, with the Aloha accident, uh, a couple of decades ago uh, that, that fuselages age over time and, and it's important to inspect them to detect uh, cracks and, and you know we we saw the the catastrophic failure of a of the roof of a 737 as a result of those types of cracks um, and, and so a lot has happened since then I mean we've we've really advanced the science of crack detection and of aircraft design and of of inspections and repairs so so we know a lot more today than than we knew in the past and and those those uh types of inspections are very important uh, i understand the, uh, the the southwest incident and what happened there but um, but i think more broadly uh there there's a lot of maintenance that's done on airplanes that's very critical and it's done day in and day out with without any failures and and I think the Southwest incident was, in fact, just an anomaly. Several airlines pulled aircraft out of service last week due to wiring issues, and yesterday we learned that faulty wiring may have caused two non-fatal runway accidents on United Airlines aircraft. What do you make of these developments, Todd Curtis? Well, uh, like I was pointing out before, uh, this is a situation where because of the intense uh, pressure and the intense focus on aviation safety, any event that normally wouldn't have made it to the papers is making it to the front page. And this United event is one of those. Now, I haven't seen the NTSB's report on this or their determination of what causes uh, ultimately or whether or not we have a wider system problem beyond United. But certainly, wires do get crossed literally on occasion, and runway excursions do occur. But as is normally the case, this is something that was 
somewhat damaging to the aircraft, but didn't really put the people inside at risk. So although this is an issue, this is a problem with United, this is a problem with, you, with maintenance on that particular model, I don't think we need to take it beyond that right now. And Jim Matthews, it's a problem that those of us who are laypersons who travel may not quite understand. It apparently has to do with whether wire bundling on aircraft was properly taped and spaced. Well, that's right. I mean, if you think about it, uh, wires carry electricity. And uh, you can see this in, in your own house. If the wiring and the insulation around the wiring is intact, then everything stays within the wire. If uh, the wiring bundle is chafed somehow, if the wires can make contact with each other or with other surfaces around it, that can cause a problem. So, you know, wiring in airplanes is, is, a, is, a, is something that you really do have to take a good close look at when you do your inspections. The good news is that most of the time those inspections uncover problems long before they're, they're real big issues. Basil, it's my understanding that you oversaw maintenance issues at U.S. Airways for a number of years. Did you ever find yourself in a situation like the airlines are in now with this kind of intense scrutiny of your maintenance and your safety procedures? You know, it's, it's, that's an interesting uh, question. In, in fact, the, the types of, of scrutiny we're seeing today, I mean, it is something new in, in, as Dr. Curtis and, and Jim touched on earlier, um, we're seeing a, a level of detail that, that surfaced in the media now that's, that goes well beyond what we've seen historically. So, you know, we're we're smart enough in in the aviation industry to recognize that things will go wrong. We we understand that that we won't get the the perfect scenario every time, and that's why we build in layers and layers of, of safety nets to catch problems as they occur. And, and the American Airlines wiring incident is, is an example of one. Um, there, there have been several others where we're seeing, I think, I think behind the scenes into some of the, the work that's done day in and day out as, as an airline manages its maintenance uh, program. And, and determines what tasks need to be done and, and when and where to accomplish those. So, and, and occasionally something, something does go wrong and a, and a T is not crossed or an I is not dotted. And, and the process um, is robust enough to, to surface that issue and make sure that it's addressed um, comprehensively and, and it, it doesn't repeat itself. So, uh, yes, the, these things I, I did experience in, in my, in my previous uh, career, and, and they're, they're not new things. I think what we've seen is that they're, when they do surface that they're managed properly. Basil Barima is Vice President of Operations and Safety with the Air Transport Association. He joins us by telephone, as does Todd Curtis, aviation safety expert and founder and publisher of airsafe.com, a website that provides safety information to the traveling public. Joining us in our studio is Jim Matthews, who is editor-in-chief of Aviation Daily. You can call us at 800-433-8850 to tell us what you think the airline industry should be doing to make sure that we're all safe when we're flying. 800-433-8850. Here is Masood in Sterling, Virginia. Masood, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Kojo. Thanks for having me on air. You're welcome. Uh, I have a question for your panel. Back in 98, I was almost... I am an electrical engineer by education, by the way. Well, I was almost hired by this research company who were trying to develop a handheld scanner 
which uh, uses eddy current, eddy current, which is a waste in the transformer with high frequencies to basically detect cracks in the body of the aeroplane, given the fact that scanners in those, those days using infrared, they were not immune to the change of the density between the, between the different layers, and eddy current was immune to that change of density. So I wanted to ask whether the technology has evolved, whether they are still using infrared, or they have been able to develop that handheld scanner using eddy current at high frequencies. I can uh, take my answer uh, later. Off the air. Off the air. Masood, thank you very much for your call. Todd Curtis. Appreciate it. Todd Curtis, can you answer that? Well, I'd like to uh, defer to Mr. Barilo on that one because uh, the specific technologies that are used for maintenance isn't something I follow closely, but I will say that eddy current, uh, eddy current testing is part of the current uh, crack detection systems that are out there in force in the fleet, and uh, they have been very good at uh, detecting uh, the smaller cracks, especially those that are not readily apparent to the eye. But again, Mr. Barilo might be uh, more appropriate for this one. Basil Barilo? Yes, that's that's absolutely true. High frequency eddy current is is a widely used uh, technique today, as are many others. We we use low frequency uh, eddy currents. There are still uh, visual inspections, different um, different penetrant inspections that that apply dye and look for look for cracks as a result of the dye penetration. There are ultrasonic inspections and other technologies that are, are even more advanced that are, are being tested, uh, certainly within airlines, but, but more in the research uh, environment done through some work through NASA and, and, uh, and within the FAA. Jim Matthews, you wanted to address this too? Well, I just wanted to add that, uh, I mean, I was writing about eddy current inspections of aircraft engines, for example, 20 years ago. Uh, this, this is... Uh, this is not new technology. It's in wide use. One of the things that I think has really improved is uh, the the modeling and the computer modeling and, and, and the algorithms around it so that we now have a much better idea of how cracks propagate and we can predict the, those behaviors better and engineers have a much better handle on how a given crack is going to behave after it's detected. And, and that's something that, that was pretty new and, and that is really starting to be applied widely. Do you have questions about how airplanes are maintained and repaired? If so, now's the time to call as we talk with Basil Barimo, Vice President of Operations and Safety with the Air Transport Association, which is a trade group that represents U.S. airlines. Jim Matthews is Editor-in-Chief of Aviation Daily, and Todd Curtis is an aviation safety expert and founder and publisher of airsafe.com, a website which provides safety information to the traveling public. Allow me to start with the telephones here with Christopher in Solomons, Maryland. Christopher, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes, uh, thank you. Good afternoon, uh, Kojo, and to the panel. I read an article in The Atlantic a few months before uh, 9-11 that discussed at length the value jet uh, accident over the Everglades, and in part what they discussed was that the promulgation of more regulations can have uh, an inverse uh, effect of that to what is desired in terms of safety and that they have so many regulations to deal with that they end up doing what is called pencil-lipping the problem. Uh, this coupled with the fact that an awful lot of maintenance is not done by the airlines themselves but by subcontractors, and I'm wondering if your uh, panel might discuss the pencil-lipping or if they're familiar with this article. Thank you much. Jim Matthews? 
Well, one thing I would point out is, is that in a lot of cases, the inspections that we're seeing recently are being done by airlines that do, in fact, do their own maintenance. American is one of the biggest uh, maintenance providers out there, and they were uh, one of the first out of the box in terms of grounding those airplanes and taking a look. Um, the other issue uh, is the regulatory environment much more complex than it used to be. Yes, it is. Does it make compliance uh, difficult and complex? Yes, it does. Uh, there are a lot more resources devoted to compliance, and in fact, that's uh, become a more sophisticated problem. And that's one of the things, one of the, the many things, that's been driving that whole push to outsource the, the maintenance in the first place. Um, so it does play a small role, uh, but uh, you know, the, the outsourced operations are, are every bit as good as, as the airlines themselves. What is to account for the 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 change in the regulatory environment? Why? Is it becoming more necessary, apparently, to have more safety regulations? I think, uh, and the other, uh, my, my colleagues here can jump in on this, but I think that part of it is just the equipment itself has become more sophisticated. You know, we have a lot more moving parts and a lot more complex pieces and a lot more engineering, and so the, it, it just becomes a more complex beast to manage and regulate and take care of. Is that what's going on here, Basil Barimo? Uh, I, I think that is the case. I mean, certainly the equipment has become more complex, but at the same time, it's it's become much more reliable, and and we've got redundancies built into aircraft, and and so so yes, they're more complex, but but they are in fact much much safer and more reliable than than they've been in the past. I I think it's important to to recognize that the the regulatory environment can can either help or or hurt uh, the industry. I think I think when the industry is able to invest its its safety resources in in things that that really matter in in targeting risks that are significant, I think we see the results and, and they're very positive. At the same time, if if we end up with with regulations that that require uh, the generation of, of paperwork that doesn't, in the end, make anyone any safer, and it only consumes resources. Then that's that's in fact diverting attention away from from the real risks, and, and I think that can can have a, a detrimental effect on safety. So we've we've been, I think, evolving over the last decade, and, and we've seen uh, a regulatory environment that that allows airlines to focus their resources on the true risks and not be diverted on, on a wild goose chase. Uh, on to Bill, who's on the Beltway in Virginia. Bill, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, the question was asked, do you pay attention to the emergency procedures when you fly? I, I fly quite frequently, and to be honest, no, I don't. Once you hear the, the uh, uh, instructions on what to do in case of an emergency, What's the point in every time you get on a plane? Uh, you know, I, I know where the emergency uh, exits are located on, on every plane. I know what to do with the emergency exit if I'm sitting there. Uh, I know what to do if a mask drops down. I know what to do with, you know, how to put the seatbelt on when the, when the pilot says that, you know, be seated and have your seatbelts on. Uh, I know that the cushions float. I know that, you know, you can put your arms through the cushions and float. But, you know, be realistic. I mean, if you're flying 30,000, 50,000 feet up in the air, I don't see where this is going to do you any good anyway. Todd Curtis, care to respond to that? Well, uh, let me respond a bit with a personal story. Uh, I fly quite frequently, and I've been hearing those announcements for over 30 years now. And I still pay attention to the announcement to a certain extent. 
especially if there's something in there that's surprising to me. Uh, for example, there are a few aircraft models out there where wherever I'm sitting, there's no exit behind me. And one of my pet peeves is I like to see an exit in front of me and one behind me. So I make it a point to take out the safety card and scan the layout of the airplane to make sure I'm the kind of airplane I want to be in. If not, I move my seat. And another thing is to go beyond the safety briefing. Uh, because if you just rely on what they tell you in the briefing, it's not going to be enough. One of the issues I talked about years ago on my site was a rash of problems that happened with people being hit by overhead luggage. And literally, if you look up from where you are, you can see very quickly if you're in an area where you're at risk for having that uh, door come open and something fall on your head. So I tell people, if you see someone putting something heavy above you, either have that person move their luggage or move yourself. So paying attention, not just to the briefing, but to your environment, is always a good idea when you fly. Okay, Bill, thank you very much for your call. We go on to Barry in Ashburn, Virginia. Barry, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, hi. I, I wanted to make a comment uh, that on every flight there's at least some people who are much more knowledgeable and, about uh, aircraft uh, safety, and, and those are the flight crew, the pilots, uh, whose lives are also at jeopardy if a plane should crash. Um, and so when you, know, when you say that we don't have any... Uh, that the passengers don't, don't have the information available to them. Well, there are certain passengers who are more than passengers who do have the information or should have the information available, and uh, they do participate in the walk-around inspections around the airplanes before they take off and, and have some responsibility for making sure that their own lives and the lives of their passengers are safe. And, Barry, that increases your feelings of security? That certainly, yeah, that helps me feel more secure when I know that the pilot is... Uh, is risking his life also when he flies. Uh, but I also wanted to ask one question. I'm, I'm puzzled by the statement that there, that regulations have gotten uh, stricter because for most of the of the government over the last um, 12 years since the Republican Congress, uh, Republicans took control of the Congress back in the Clinton days, uh, the push has been to relax regulations. The industry has had a big influence on. Congress and uh, I'm well, complaining about. I'm not. I mean the air. air I know. I know you're talking about deregulation in general. I'm going to yeah. ask Jim Matthews how that has applied to the airline industry and safety regulations in particular. Has been a has there been a significant push for deregulation there? There's been a push, but there hasn't been much of it. Uh, and when we think about deregulation, we typically think more about the deregulation on the business side, fares and routes and that sort of thing. Certainly on the safety side. Uh, we haven't seen a, a wholesale, uh, you know, whacking down of, of safety standards or elimination of uh, safety regulations as, as they pertain to the engineering of the aircraft. Barry, thank you very much for your call. The FAA is going to be auditing the airline industry over the next few months, meaning more flight cancellations are likely. How much do you think that or this ongoing story is going to affect public confidence in air travel, Basil Barima? Well, I, I would disagree with you, and I, and I would say that I don't expect that audit to result in widespread cancellations. Um, what, you're, what you're referring to is the second phase of a two-phase audit, the first phase of which has just recently been completed, and it, it basically looked at, at 10 airworthiness directives at every, uh, every commercial airline and, and did an in-depth review of the compliance and, and Although FAA hasn't formally announced their results yet, uh, the indications are that, that they found overwhelming compliance and, and that 
the the uh, discrepancies that they did find were in fact just technicalities and there were in no cases any safety issues that were found. So I, I think if that's an indication of, of what we'll find in the more expansive look over the next few months, um, I'd, I'd venture to say that we will not see widespread cancellations as a result. How much do cancellations affect the airline's bottom line? Cancellations are, are huge. Uh, you know, it's it's in the airline's uh, best interest to to complete their schedule. Even if even if flights run late, it's better to get the airplanes and the passengers ultimately where they need to be because then you can you can run a normal operation the following day. Cancellations mean that airplanes and crews and passengers and, and baggage are not where they're supposed to be, and and that's very disruptive to this. It's a very complex network that that's um, operating basically around the world. So cancellations have a huge impact, and they, they cost the industry billions each year. 800-433-8850 is the number to call to join this conversation about the airline industry and safety. Do you have questions about how airlines are maintained and repaired? If so, now is the time to call. Jim Matthews, it's my understanding that fuel costs are the biggest expenditure for the airlines, and the high cost of fuel hurts airlines more than do cancellations. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, uh, uh, especially lately, uh, a lot of the airlines uh, have found themselves without the ability to hedge their fuel costs. So every time you, you think it's bad when you go and, and see that your, your local pump is going to cost you $3.25. Well, think about it. If you're operating... I don't know, 800 cars, and you're operating them maybe 300, 400 miles a day, what would that do to you? Imagine what that would do to your budget. And every day you wake up, it's a little bit different. This is kind of, in a, in a nutshell, what the airlines have been facing. They, they don't have control over those costs. And every other area of their operation, they've been able to, to really tamp down costs. They've been able to do it in labor. They've been able to do it in, uh, in operations, in smoothing out their workflows. But then the fuel cost comes along, and it wipes out anything they saved and adds a little more. And, and Jim, let me just add that, it, that fuel now accounts for uh, some 26.5% of airline operating expenses. It's by far the biggest component. And, and in fact, at, at, at current levels, the airline's fuel bill is expected to exceed $55 billion in 2008, and that's compared to $15 billion in 2003, so a huge increase. Does that mean my travel costs are going to be going up? I, I have a hard time believing that prices can go down as as fuel continues to rise. I mean, you're, you're seeing the results of it with, with fares increasing. We've also seen two, uh, two airlines cease operations, in fact, this week. And on a smaller scale, you're also going to see it in sort of the area of fares. Look what we've seen now with uh, the handling fees for processing your frequent flyer awards. You're going to see lots of little fees pop up as well to try to offset some of those cost rises. Another another cost that uh, was... This is Todd Curtis. Go ahead, please. Yes, another touch, uh, cost that was touched upon earlier was what's the cost of cancellations, uh, getting back to the uh, yes. whole um, uh, audit of, of safety. One of the things that uh, surprises many uh, passengers is that there's no real rule or laws or regulations that dictate that the airlines have to compensate passengers for a delayed or canceled flight. Now, in Europe, it's a radically different situation. But in the States, except for some very limited situations being bumped from an airplane involuntarily, 
you're not obligated to get anything. So not only may passengers be inconvenienced, they may be out of a hotel bill or other bills associated with a delayed or canceled flight. So the safety audit can have a very personal effect on some passengers, and that remains to be seen how many will be affected. Well, Todd Curtis, that allows me to bring up this issue. There's been a criticism that says that the FAA has been too cozy with the airline industry in the past. You just compared it to what's available in some parts of Europe, um, and that the that the airline industry is now trying to protect itself from scrutiny over its performance in overseeing airplane safety. What do you make of that argument, Todd? Well, I don't believe that's necessarily so, in part because uh, there's always been a very close relationship between the FAA and the avi- aviation industry, because those who've been in the industry for a while, at some point, they're usually a part of one or more parts of it, either as regulators or as participants, as, as pilots, as mechanics, what have you. So uh, we tend to have an understanding of where the other person's coming from, so it's not necessarily a uh, adversarial relationship. But another thing, perhaps even more important, if you have the idea that it's only safety regulations that allows us to have a safe system, that could not be further from the truth. There are all sorts of incentives, the most important of which being common sense. No one wants to see an airplane go down in flames. No one wants to see anyone hurt or killed. And also, no one wants to see the system being inefficient. That is, not getting people there in time, not making money for their companies. There are many, many innovations which over time have contributed tremendously to lowering the risk. And one of those innovations, and again, getting back to this uh, earlier point, one of those innovations is communication. It used to be, when I started in the safety business at Boeing almost uh, 18 years ago, uh, that unless you were an insider, unless you had access to the databases or to the private files of accidents and incidents, it was very difficult for the average person to have a background information on especially the smaller incidents that occurred. Now, you can go online and download stuff from civil aviation authorities from around the world and without any connection to the industry have a very thorough understanding of what the trends are and where the dangers are. Well, we did contact the FAA and invited the agency to join this discussion. We did not receive a response to that request. We move on now to Alan on the Beltway in Virginia. Alan, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, yeah. My question is, is uh, I'm want to know the real reason why we can't use personal electronic devices until we get up off the air. I, I really seriously doubt that an iPod or a laptop or a cell phone is going to take an airplane down. Jim Matthews? You know, this has been boiling for years and years and years. You know, and I've asked the same question, and uh, I'm not going to pretend that I have enough engineering expertise to give you the expert answer, but the answers that I've heard from both sides go a little bit like this. The the pro side says that uh, there are small radio emissions that come off of these devices, and that uh, if it's not just your machine, it's everybody's machine because you've got 130 people on the airplane. And if half of them started using their device, you could potentially overwhelm signals that, that need to, to get transmitted through the cockpit. The uh, the other side of it says everything's well shielded these days. These are very small amounts and that the frequencies aren't the same. And so uh, what you're really seeing now is, is a tug of war between the FCC engineering teams and the FAA engineering teams over what the effect really is going to be. And so without that consensus among the engineers, you know, in the engineering community, you're certainly not going to get the regulators to go one way or the other. Basil Barima, what the airline industry seems to be saying is, why take that chance? Yeah, the the industry is is certainly not going to 
to take any chances with with PEDs, and we're looking to the experts, both at the FCC and, and the FAA, to, to, to determine if the technology can be used safely on board. Once a determination has been made and, and we're over the, the technical or engineering hurdle, then we get to the social hurdle, and, and that's whether or not passengers are, are willing to sit on a several-hour flight listening to their neighbor uh, talk on the phone. And again, I think it's just a matter of time before we get past the technical hurdle and we'll be dealing with the issue of whether passengers, in fact, want the ability to speak on the phone. Todd well, Curtis, um, put on your passenger hat here for a second, and you're sitting next to me, and I'm yapping away for three or four hours on my cell phone. Would you find that in any way annoying? Well, it doesn't have to be three or four hours. And again, getting back to a personal story, which solidified my opinion as to why cell phones shouldn't be allowed in flight. Uh, once I was in an airplane before it took off, we were still at the gate. A gentleman next to me had a very long conversation, very loud conversation, about his soon-to-be ex-wife and the many myriad things he claimed this ex-wife to have done to him. And I used a few choice words here and there. And I thought to myself, yes, he did apologize. It was only five minutes long. Imagine if this were two or three hours worth of this at altitude. Now, getting back to the earlier issue on why don't we have electronics during takeoff and landing? And when I was in airplane safety engineering at Boeing, we actually came across a few events where we suspected passenger electronics may have been involved in some aspect of an incident. We could never really pin down a particular device that caused a particular problem. But one thing we did realize very quickly is that the people who make the rules for the airplane, that is, the FAA and the other civil aviation organizations as to what sort of emissions you can have, what kind of shielding, are totally divorced from the people who make regulations as to what an electronic device can spew out. Not to mention the fact that you have all sorts of off-brand electronics that may not fit anyone's criteria, and you could be polluting the atmosphere with all sorts of electronic interference. So given those situations, and given the fact that most of the risk happens at takeoff and landing, it seems sensible that we turn the stuff off then, and leave it on when it's much less risk. We're talking about airline safety with Jim Matthews, editor-in-chief of Aviation Daily, Todd Curtis, aviation safety expert and founder and publisher of airsafe.com, which provides safety information to the traveling public. And we're also talking by phone with Basil Barimo, vice president of operations and safety with the Air Transport Association, which is a trade group that represents U.S. airlines. Here's Peter in Dulles, Virginia. Peter, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes, um, I'm very concerned about the outsourcing of maintenance. As in Beijing, China right now, they have 2,000 maintenance people working on our aircraft and only five people inspecting all their work. I don't understand how that can be safe. I'd like to, you know, your comments on this? Jim, Jim Matthews? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I, I think we should point out that the most of the uh, outsourced shops that we're looking at out there are very large, sophisticated organizations. This is not, you know, a mom-and-pop operation putting up a shingle saying, I fix airplanes. Um, it's the largest uh, providers in Asia, for example, you got Singapore Airlines, uh, which is a very enviable safety record, and uh, ST Aero. Uh, both uh, these are very large uh, major operations and they have a, a terrific record so uh, when we talk about outsourcing we need to be careful that, that we you know have the right impression here um, the other issue is that uh, the work is being inspected in the, in the in the same way that what's inspected in this country uh, it's the same standards and it's the same kind of work 
so you know we, we have to be you have to be realistic about uh, what kind of work is being done and the level of detail that that work is being done in. Peter, does that answer your question? Uh, well, I don't think he's actually correct because you would never have five people expect, inspect 2,000 people working in the United States. That would be just totally against any FAA rules or anything like that. Um, okay. Basil Barino, you've been in this business before. Go ahead, please. I, I have, and the rules are, are very specific about the kinds of work that requires inspection versus no inspection. And, and the regulations are clear, and the regulations apply whether the work is done here in the United States or or abroad, so or, or with, within the airline itself here, or at an MRO. So, I mean, the the, the rules are are the same regardless of where the work is performed. So, I, you know, if if there are, if there's an operation that has five people inspecting two thousand uh, technicians' work, I'm uh, I'm not familiar with it. Um, they would typically have the the number of inspectors needed to supervise the the work that's being done and comply with the regulations. So I'm uh, I'm I'm not clear where the five versus two thousand comes from. Where'd you get that figure from, Peter? Well, I happen to be an aviation mechanic, and we were just at a uh, a summit meeting in D.C. about outsourcing, and the FAA was there, and I got it from the FAA woman herself. Well, the other problem the other problem with the FAA is they cannot make spot inspections over in Beijing, China, because it takes them 30 days to get a visa. So there's no such thing as a surprise inspection because they know the day they're coming. Well, as I said, we invited the FAA to be here for this broadcast, and we didn't get a response, so it's not in a position to respond. But allow me to have Basil Barimo give it a shot again. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to. You know, FAA, through reciprocal agreements, looks to um, foreign entities to provide uh, a level of surveillance uh, on their behalf, but at the same time, they do on-site inspections. And, and I, I recognize the issue of, of the of the spot inspection. But again, when we're talking about the the MROs in Asia that are doing much of the work on on our wide-body airplanes today, um, that that is that is the center of excellence for wide-body maintenance. Um, a lot of that capability does not exist in the United States, and so so carriers couldn't have their triple sevens or seven forty sevens maintained here in the U.S. Even if the airplanes came here, but they naturally reside in in Asia. That's where they operate from. Uh, having having a, a a large, sophisticated uh, company that's recognized as as an expert in the field performing maintenance, I think, is a a, a pretty good setup for the airline. So, um, you know, I I would disagree that that you know with with the uh, um, the allegation that you know relying on on these foreign MROs somehow provides a, a product that's less safe. In fact, the the data has shown clearly that. Um, that whether maintenance is performed in, internally here in the U.S. or, or abroad, um, the results have been exceptional. What's an MRO? Uh, a maintenance repair or overhaul oh, okay. uh, service provider. Okay, Peter, thank you very much for your call. Todd, Curtis, um, some people always seem to feel safer when they're on a large jet rather than on one of those smaller regional jets. Are the bigger planes actually safer? Well, this is something I've, I've looked at fairly closely over the years, and what it boils down to is that in certain situations, for example, if the plane is actually in a crash situation, 
uh, the larger jets tend to have better survivability for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them, surprisingly, being where they tend to fly. A smaller regional aircraft sometimes fly in places that don't have the infrastructure the large airport would have. Uh, there was a case here in the States a few years ago where a small aircraft, a twin turboprop aircraft, uh, crashed at, I believe it was in Minnesota airport, and caught fire. Although there was a fire truck a minute away from the crash site that could have gone there and put out the fire, the people who were staffing the fire truck were about 10 miles down the road. By the time they got there, it was too late to save anyone. So that's one kind of safety. Another is just crash survivability with larger aircraft tends to be a little bit better than smaller. However, that said, crashes are so rare for any reason that uh, this is not even a consideration in my head when I, I choose a flight. If the risk is so low of getting into a crash, then you know, arguing over whether you have better survivability in a larger versus a smaller one doesn't really enter my mind. Jim Matthews, any specific kinds of aircraft that might be safer than others? Are 737s, for example, more or less safer than other kinds of aircraft? Not really. I mean, again, you have to look more at the, the operating profile. Uh, that is going to determine the statistical likelihood of, you know, if you look at the statistics that say that this sort of airplane has uh, more, more crashes associated with it than that, it's a function of the kinds of routes that it flies and uh, the number of times that it takes off and lands in a given day. Uh, not the airplane itself, you know, and, and, and so I think it's I think it's misleading for people to kind of go down that road and say, well, well I'm only going to fly a 737 because that's somehow safer uh, than uh, you know than an, than an RJ. Historically speaking, is air travel safer than it used to be, and if so, why? It's much safer than it used to be, and it's a combination of factors. Um, the engineering's better, the systems are more reliable, uh, the uh, the, the infrastructure around it is better, uh, and we have a better understanding of why uh, airplanes crash, and, and we have a better understanding of, of sort of the chain of events that leads to, to lapses in, say, attention or, or procedures. Um, so we do have a very, very safe system now. Allow me to go to Mark in Boonesboro, Maryland. Mark, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. You know, back in the old days, it actually was a, there was one thing that was a little safer, and it's an example of how regulations have unintended consequences. When they allowed smoking, cracks in airplanes were much easier to find from the nicotine. I'm not sure I understand that. Were they, were, was the nicotine the cause of the cracks? No, no. The nicotine would accumulate in the cracks and make oh. them more visible. They would even be able to see the nicotine stains on the outsides of the airplanes. So, um, are you suggesting anything here, Mark? Maybe go back to smoking. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, I thought as much. Uh, Mark, I don't think we're going to go there um, at this point. I see no likelihood that that's going to happen unless Basil Barimo knows something that I don't. No, no, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take my chances flying and avoid lung cancer, thanks. <laughs> Thank you very much for your call, Mark. Here's Max in Washington, D.C. Max, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Kojo. Uh, I just wanted to throw in a couple of things. One thing that I always thought about, I've been an airline pilot for six years, was it wasn't an electronic issue as far as the safety announcements were concerned. It was a matter of having the, you know, the cabin of passengers pay attention to the uh, safety announcements. Um, actually, I'll leave it at that and let you guys comment on that. Interesting. Um, Todd Curtis? Well, again, this is reflecting the point I made earlier. Yeah. It's not a question of listening to the standard canned speech that the flight attendant might be on automatic giving, but 
taking responsibility, looking around your your area to see if there's anything out of the ordinary, anything you should pay attention to, or anything unusual, and also to have a plan in your head for what to do if you have to escape the airplane. Go ahead, Jay. I think, you know, to pick up on that, you know, when I fly, one of the things I look for is I look and see who's seated in the exit row. Um, one of the things flight attendants are supposed to do is make sure that the people who are seated in the exit row can actually handle being in an exit row. I always, particularly on, on airlines without assigned seats, you know, you'll see a, a seven-year-old kid sit in the exit row. Those are the kinds of things you can do to take responsibility for your own safety in the airplane. Okay, here's Jim in Gaithersburg, Maryland. Jim, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yeah, I was curious why neither the uh, FAA nor the aviation industry uh, requires that pilots be able to see at all times. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I understand the question, but I'll toss it to Todd Curtis. Well, well, well let me just throw out, sure. I mean, if you've got smoke in the cockpit and it's continuous and you can't get rid of it, there's no currently mandated process for a pilot to be able to see. They just say land as soon as possible, but if you can't see, how can you do that? Todd, again. Well, that's a situation where, uh, again, thinking back uh, very quickly to 1989 when you had the DC-10 at Sioux City with full hydraulic failure, that was a situation that had no plan. There was no procedure in place for landing the plane without any hydraulics whatsoever. But the crew was very imaginative, and they got the plane on the ground. In a situation like the caller just described, where you have smoke in the cockpit, you can't see, and yet you have to land as soon as possible, I'm sure that in a situation like that, if there's nothing in the playbook, they will come up with a new play and come up with one quickly. And, 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 and I, I'd, I'd like to add. This, Please this go ahead. Uh, you know, if, if by the time you get to a situation where where the flight crew can't see out the window, things have gone too far, and that's why we have we have checklists built in so that not not once we get a, a cabin or a cockpit full of smoke do we take action, but at, at the first indication of, or, or scent of, a, of something wrong. So, you know, whether it's an electrical smell in the cabin or something that they detect in, in the flight deck, I mean, the, the first response is to descend and, and get the airplane on the ground because we recognize that, that there's not a lot of time when you're dealing with in-flight fires. So, you know, our, our approach to that situation is to not not be in a situation where we have a cockpit full of smoke, but to react much sooner and get the airplane on the ground safely. Jim, thank you very much for your call, and I'm afraid that's about all the time we have. Well, let me try to get in this quick email from Susan, who says, As someone who used to work at the NTSB, I always count the seats to the nearest exits. Also, could you give your guests, could you have your guests address holding children in their lap versus getting them on a seat? Can you address that in 30 seconds or less, Todd? Oh, very quickly, and, I, and this is something we talked about on the site extensively. I basically tell people, if you have the opportunity to put a child in a child seat, well strapped in, do so. Uh, otherwise, if you don't, then follow the, uh, the instructions of the flight attendant for holding the child, especially in an emergency. Todd Curtis is an aviation safety expert and founder and publisher of airsafe.com, which provides safety information to the traveling public. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me again. Basil Barima is Vice President of Operations and Safety with the Air Transport Association, which represents U.S. airlines. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jim Matthews is Editor-in-Chief of Aviation Daily. Always a pleasure. You too. Thank you for listening. I'm Kojo Nahandi. For additional information and other resources related to the issues discussed in this show, please visit faa.airsafe.org. 
There you'll find links to related resources and links to other resources related to airline safety and security. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.